Yeah, I think that was also projection or like for me, it was the hardest to actually do. But I think some of the reasons why, especially working in that enterprise B2B type of market, these ERP systems, is that the user populations are vast. Uh, we're also talking oftentimes about international. So there's there's nuances to different cultures, uh, different rules, regulations, and things like that. But the, the population is not only vast, so it's hard to find a persona or an archetype. It's also really difficult to, like, sometimes they want different things. Like you look at what the compliance people want versus what maybe the operations people want in terms of efficiency, you're going to have conflict there. And when there's different user needs, like which users' needs are more important or more more compelling or more pervasive as well, especially when there's conflicts, how do you actually make that happen? And that's probably why some of these systems look, feel, and work as difficult as they do. Welcome to Product Growth Leaders Topic of the Week, a podcast that explores product management and leadership topics through interactive conversations with our product leader panelists. Conversations that will challenge you to think about your thoughts on the topic and perhaps get you to change your mind. I am Grant Hunter, co-founder of Product Growth Leaders and the host and facilitator for these conversations. Listen, subscribe, and add your voice to the conversation every week in the Product Growth Leaders community. Hello, everybody. Grant Hunter here with Product Growth Leaders. Steve, I, I, I'm remembering back a long, long, long time ago when I was learning about product management and I, uh, this chart that somebody shared with me that had buyers and users and competitors and vision, I think is what the four were. And that really was my inspiration this week because I started thinking about how often do we overcorrect one way or the other on the buyer and the user, right? And so obviously the, to the topic this week is buyers versus users, but talk to me about your inspiration when you were thinking about it back then. Well, I think everybody's got their own point of view right? I mean, salespeople engage entirely with buyers. And so they look at everything through the lens of, if I had more features that buyers want, then I would be able to sell more product. Meanwhile, support has an entirely different point of view. They're dealing with new users and experienced users. And so they've got a really strong user orientation. Um, as a business person, a product manager should also be looking at uh, vision, and the competitive landscape. You know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish and how do you do that uniquely? And those four categories also correspond to the, the artifacts that we create, that the roadmap is more of a visionary document and the backlog is more of a sales or, or, or uh, buyers and users requests uh, uh, means, I guess. But as a product manager, I think we're the only ones that are looking at all four of those. I would agree. And, and, I, and one thing that I always loved that you said was in each release, you should try to touch each of them, have something for the buyer, have something for the user, have something to deal with competitors and have something that's helping you drive on your vision. And then to me, that's like even a first principle I've always used in product management mm -hmm. uh, going back way back long, 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 long time ago. So <laughs> I decided it might be too much to focus on all four. Uh, and we've done a lot on strategy and vision. So, uh, you know, what I decided to do is, is let's look at buyers and users. And so on Monday, we put this in the community. How do you best balance 
buyer and user needs. And I, I really think I need to start talking with Paul Hatala before I write these and going and buy, but he always has like great contextual thoughts. He goes, I like to think of harmony instead of balance because it's not a weight, right? You're not discounting one for the other, right? It's about how do they work in harmony with each other? Uh, and I thought that was an, an amazingly insightful way to look at it, right? And maybe balance isn't the right word, but that's what we used on Monday. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's talk about how do we best balance or find harmony between buyer and user needs. Uh, May, you talked about in a com complex enterprise B2B uh, environment in which this is the place where buyers and users become sort of they start separating, they're their own things, right? In a B2C world, often the buyer is the user. And, you know, sometimes you need to understand how they, you know, all sides of it for one person. But in a, in a B2B world, you really need to break this out. You talked about the decision maker, the champion, the manager, implementation. Talk to me through your thoughts on how do you best balance or find harmony in buyers and users? I don't know if there's a way to best balance it, but I think it's important to keep in mind that the buyer is not one person, right? So yeah. the reason why I broke it down is because there is a lot of nuance within just the word buyer. And what we need to realize is all of the buyers along the way, they are also people who come from other companies who use your product and they become your champions. So therefore your users are the people who become your buyers, especially in within like the longevity terms of an enterprise product. So you better be building for your users or else when they become buyers, they will never champion it. Yeah, and, and actually I love how you dig into this whole Buyer is not a sole persona, uh, in, 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 in especially in larger organizations. A buying process may include multiple people, and so how do we, uh, you know, understand that, right? So part of, I mean, do you think, May, that people spend as much time on buyers as they do on users? Of course, they spend so much time on the decision maker. It's it's almost always on the decision maker, but really like the person you need to convince is the person who brought you on board in the first place, which like 80 to 90% of the time is not the decision maker. So the decision maker is either the CXO or the VP, but the person who's really championing your product is usually a senior manager or a manager or someone who just like really wants to solve that problem. And they tend to have influence within that sphere and we don't focus on them ever. Like we, most of the time when we talk about buyers it's like, well, the CXO of this company wants this, right? that doesn't that doesn't matter like it yeah. actually doesn't matter if you can convince the people to love your product and to like really push that decision to say yes you make it easy for you to navigate the purchasing process which is another hellscape um like it there, there is so much that goes into an enterprise purchase and that is the reason why enterprise products are so sticky because they've just spent millions of dollars on just acquiring your product yeah <laughs> and it creates some barriers to entry and, and then yeah yeah and that doesn't even include the implementation that eventually fails five years from now and then you bring in your competitor right like yeah. and it's it's this constant vicious cycle and the problem never gets solved Solved, right so how, how companies get rid of C, cios before they give up on sap 
right? <laughs> exactly. So like th there's so many pieces of this um, within the complexity of an enterprise deal that like even within the frame of just one deal, your users might become a buyer. Uh, that I, I've never seen that happen. What I do like well, is no, that- Not on the same company. Oh yeah, in another place. What I do like is this idea of there is this person somewhere between the end buyer, the, the top buyer person and the user who gets, understands both sides, understands the value for each and maybe helps you know be your champion to help do that. Yeah. Uh, Corey, I'm going to get to you about your answer, but I want to go to the question you put in there. You said enterprise products are sticky because they're difficult to buy. And I, I want to, I would say that, you know, research has shown that the higher the price point of a product, the longer the sales cycle, the progress to Elliot's point, the more difficult the implementation is, the stickier they are because they don't want to go through that again, right? More people have given up on CIOs before they've given up on SAP or Workday or whatever it may be. Any thoughts on that before we go to your answer? So stickiness, yeah. so stickiness ahead, of that concept means we're going to stick with it no matter whether it's useful or not versus stickiness with a direct-to-consumer type product where they find value in it and they're constantly coming back because you're offering that value. You're saying that the more friction and the harder it is and the more expensive it is, the less likely somebody will shift off of it because they've psychologically invested so much time and effort in it that they can't be wrong uh, well assuming that your competitors are that full of friction and complexity right yeah. obviously a simple solution comes in and makes it easy where you, it's not a complex migration or whatever once you've gotten all your data in the system it's hard to move it right i guess that's not my definition of sticky though well i don't want it yeah. to be sticky but it's, it's it's truthful elliot you wanted to say something on that yeah, I've, I've worked in this space for most of my product management career, and I found that ultimately the amount of pain that's involved in actually getting it live and the amount of pain involved in doing the ER, the RFP, going through all the demos, making the decision, going through and getting budget for the implementation, which oftentimes is seven figures plus just for the implementation, going through that versus sticking with and st being miserable with an existing tool, they choose like the known misery as opposed to as opposed to the incremental improvement in theory that may or may not be there, but you're talking about years and millions of dollars and probably your, your career at the organization in order to get that done. That is why SAP, Oracle, uh, PeopleSoft, et cetera, are still in business despite their terrible customer satisfaction scores. Uh, yes, Corey, as to the chat, it is a depressing conversation. I, I do want to stick, you know, because this is an interesting conversation, there's a little, you know, disagreement here. I wanted to get John and Steve to weigh on on this, right? Uh, what have you guys seen? You want to take it, Steve? You're on. Oh, you're muted. You're muted, Steve. Go, John. <laughs> oh, I, I guess I, I'm going to kind of echo what I've heard thus far. I agree. I mean, the barrier to entry certainly, you know, decreases the likelihood that a company will ever shift away. And there, there are plenty of examples. I was thinking of Epic. I don't know if any of you guys are in the, you know, healthcare. the healthcare space, but they're they're entrenched and they're never going to be uh, unseated. Um, what I find interesting, actually, in, in this in, on this topic is when you can mobilize your users to become the buyer or to influence the buyer. And a relatively recent example I think of is Slack, 
Um, I think Slack found a lot of success because teams who are desperate for a better means of communication were able to you know, quickly incorporate it into their, into their teams, uh, kind of under the radar, um, became uh, dependent on it, found a lot of value in it. And then when they reached the, the, the limits of its capabilities because it was still free, were then able to you know, make a convincing case to management or whatnot to, to make the sale. Um, uh, but again, so then, then again, the, 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 the user becomes a buyer of sorts or, or, or an influencer to the buyer. Beyond that, I don't go. Go ahead. What are we going to say? I said so in the product-led growth area, right? It's something like Slack mm -hmm. or, or Zoom. Some of these tools where you start the individual, maybe you move it to a divisional, and it can go the other way. Often, in the experience that many of us had have had with enterprise software over a long, long, long time, it's normally the opposite with the buyer pushing it down. And so that's one of the great things about potentially product-led growth. If you can get that value tangibly at that low level that it then the virality of it helps you get to the next place. I, I, I think I can see that. Uh, that. The question I have here is, you know, once you have all your conversations in Slack or Teams for that matter, how hard is it to switch everybody to a different platform? Do you get that same stickiness? I think actually to, to echo Corey's point, I think that users are much more resilient to change than our you know, enterprises and, and upper management. <laughs> And so, I mean, I saw like, you know, Slack was hot for a couple of years and then Discord unseated, you know, it came along very quick. And at least in, in my, you know, engineering centric, you know, domain, they were very quick to shift and they had no problems with just saying, okay, this is just better. And, and within a week, you know, the team had, had shifted to, to Discord and it was, and still using the, the kind of the, the vestiges of, of Slack and their messages there to, to sustain it. But, but yeah, the transition was complete, at least within the team. Yeah. I can see that, and you know, and that this goes to some of the when you don't have the right balance between user and buyer. Some people, times, people are buying stuff that may sound good to them, but the users don't want to use it, and it becomes shelfware, and there's no value received, anyways. Steve, I want to get to Corey and his answer and some of the stuff in the community, but you know, I just want to get your your input on this. You know, the stickiness, you know, the complexity, length of deal, hairiness of implementation. Do you see that that's that's a barrier? To switching yeah yeah but I, I still you know i still am focused on this harmony of buying and using needs i mean I, I see so many products like every erp product is totally about the buyer which is why all the users hate it um and if you remember the early days of salesforce salesforce benefited everyone except salespeople Right, it gave visibility into the pipeline, and it gave good reporting, and all the salespeople went, "Yeah, but what? It, it doesn't make my life any easier. It's making my life more difficult." And when they finally got the buying and using needs in harmony, then Salesforce took off. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that example. Uh, I love that example, Corey. I want to get to uh, one of your comments in the chat, and then go to your answer from uh, the Monday question. You said this line of thinking leads to difficult to use, difficult to implement, implement expensive, long time to adopt types of products, which is sad to hear or think about. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with you on that, uh, but you know, it's a reality. Is that changing with SaaS? A lot, a lot of the examples we used, you know, an SAP or a PeopleSoft or you know that type of stuff were originally, you know. 
applications and, the, and that type of stuff that were more difficult. Is I mean, SaaS making it any easier? God, I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, what are we doing? If we're not making, I mean, okay, how do you balance buyer and user needs? Okay, you address both of them. Which one should you favor more of? The user. Why? Because I've never had somebody buy me a product that I liked more than I could pick one myself. Uh, if the person who's buying the thing and the person who's using the thing don't talk and understand each other's needs, that's not a recipe for success for anybody, uh, except for the salesperson who gets their deal done. And to the point of if it's a long, expensive RFP process that takes years and supervisory approvals and people betting their budgets on it, you got a customer. Congratulations. Everybody hates it. Nobody uses it. In fact, what you'll find when you go into those types of products is there's other products where they actually do the work. They're using Excel or they're using some commercial uh, software that they pay for themselves. I've done that myself. I've seen others do it because they hate the products that people bought for them that do not fit the job they need to do, the purpose they need to do. They'll put it in there. Like you want your monthly numbers in there? Fine, I'll upload them on the 29th. You can have them on the 30th. But I'm not working in that product every day because it sucks. It sucks to use and I won't do it. Yeah, I, and I, I think... I mean, God, there's so many places in my head I'm going, you know, this is where this, you know, best of breed applications probably tend to be more user centered, where, I mean, so, where so I, I, tend I, to be I, more buyer centered, right? I'll put it to you this way. When we talked about SaaS and we talked about, you know, tools like Slack and Discord and other things, the easy adopt product led growth type adoption. The buyer in that case is the person who gives you the credit card to sign up so your team can use the product that you've already found. It's not, it, it's, it, you can, you can have, we, we have a 14 person startup that's, that's using Slack, right? We didn't have to have a conversation with a salesperson or do anything except put in our credit card number. You could do that. I, I imagine there's big, really big companies that are on Slack and they might get discounts because they have so many users, but I would hate to see that there was a nine month RFP process for somebody to purchase Slack. It's more like, do you check these boxes with security that we're concerned about as a buyer? We sure do, here it is. They didn't have to do anything different. And then when the buyer is satisfied that their needs are gonna be met because it's a working product and everybody's saying you have to buy this product for us, they just sign the check. So I, part of me says it's not a buyer, it's a check signing responsibility or a credit card authorization responsibility that you're really looking for there. So uh, there is some stuff that I've, I, I, and I'm in my head thinking about some stuff in here. And it's like, what Steve and I go through literally uh, vendor onboarding things that take months for some of our, and we're selling them like less than $100,000 services, not even software, right? Is the problem that on the buyer side, especially in those big companies, it's become too bureaucratic yes obviously obviously you need to sell nine ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars so you're below the threshold that <laughs> triggers enterprise sales yeah so the the threshold generally speaking is who you're talking to and what's their sign-off level and generically for a director or vp or whatever equivalent it is it's 250,000 us dollars so um if you just go slightly below that We've signed enterprise deals at a conference before. Like that is, 
if you set the price point right, but like at the same time, are you underselling? Are you trying to get your? I had to. Rate? I had to for for a deal that was less than that, less than a hundred thousand dollars. I had to sign. I had to create our penetration testing strategy for our enterprise because we had to check all these boxes on security yeah. type stuff. Right now, that that was a highly regulated industry, so they have very strong rules. But I guess the point I'm making mm -hmm. is. There are there is the functional buyer, and maybe in my head I was thinking functional buyer when I asked this question. But the bureaucratic buyer may be the biggest problem we have when we're dealing with this. And May, you talked about uh, wait. I think this is true for every product management tool. If you know the number of people I've talked to who have implemented roadmap tools out of the box and realized it didn't do anything they thought it was going to do, and they had to spend money and time integrating it with other things to make it work. I know one company whose whole budget for product management went into integrating one of those roadmap tools with another tool just to get the value that they were looking for from it when they made the initial, uh, you know, it is every, every business tool, right? Every enterprise software tool. Because uh, if it can't do it on its own, if it can do it on its own, you gain no competitive advantage from it because everybody else can get that out of the box. If it can't do it on its own, there's a whole bunch more you have to think about. So just like for context for people who don't know me, um, I, I've done a stint in enterprise sales ops. I'm now in product ops. And enterprise sales ops is everything we're talking about here. There's a lot of issues with vendor onboarding. There's a lot of issues with like just the legalities of the master services agreement um, that exists between every single other, two companies doing business. And that's just the way the world works right now. And it sucks. And I think a lot of these pains come from that, um, where we're talking about kind of the administrative pains of sales. And then on top of that, you've got like the administrative pains of product where we're talking about like the functional buyers. Um, but like when we're talking about people who are buying tools, and as person running product ops, I've ended up buying a lot of tools as well. Um, it's like when you start buying a tool, usually it's, I think we need a road mapping tool. And it, it always starts like that. That's the tool every single product ops group starts off with. I think we need a, pro a road mapping tool. And then you find out no one actually sells a road mapping tool. Everyone sells a product management portfolio management tool because in a way it kind of makes sense. And so you're like, well, I don't need that. I need a roadmap. <laughs> so what problems is that tool solving? And all of a sudden you have to start like analyzing the much deeper field of what that tool is. And when you are an enterprise product selling to the enterprise, you also probably are a platform. And therefore by the nature of what you are trying to sell, it is complicated. You are complicating it for the buyer. Not and on it's purpose. Worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about. No, I, I agree. I, I completely agree. Uh, Elliot, I want to get to your answer because I, I thought you had a great take on it. Well, first, right, the first step is to accept, right? You realize that you need to get better at this. Talk to me about what went through your head and what, you, what your thinking is. Yeah, I, I think I kind of went through all the, the stages of uh, grief in a way. Like, then I like, no, I'm not doing that. And then I kind of got angry at myself. And I, then as I wrote it out, I got to this, this matter of acceptance and then resolution of when I get my next role, uh, hopefully soon, knock on wood, that I can 
then be more intentional about actually getting it done, but not doing so much that it goes overboard because I know when I'm going to hyper-focus on something, I'm going to overdo it, which is why I have golf clubs in my closet that I haven't used in 10 years, et cetera. That, that kind of thing. You and so me for both. Me, I even yeah. moved them. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, well, we cannot play around a golf whenever you want. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> really, as I, I kind of like, I look at this as a bit of a catharsis. It was like the idea of like, I have essentially compromised or pre preemptively compromised to get the path of least resistance or to have easier conversations versus doing what is probably more correct. And I wouldn't say I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm, I'm not doing the correct thing. And if we're trying to strike a balance that involves actually delivering on that balance. Yeah, I, I completely and totally get that. But I, I liked your approach to acknowledging the gap and being intentional about how do you how do you change this. And I think that that's one of the key things. We need to understand both sides. And and maybe to Corey's point, we need to understand how do we make the one side easier and better to make sure that we're, you know, maybe that's how you create a barrier to entry. You become so easy to use and so good and deliver so much value nobody wants to leave, not because it took so long to do it. That would be ideal. Yeah. Marco Tillman, so good to see you coming in. Uh, it's been a while since you've been on the panel. Uh, what's your take? How do you best balance buyer and user needs? First of all, thanks a lot. Yeah, I've, I've been awfully busy at NVIDIA, and uh, so it's it's not always been easy uh, taking my way away from that schedule. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to react to something that May uh, said, and that is about the road mapping tools, because I'm like front center and right in the middle of that right now. Uh, helping uh, PMO with introducing something like that. And part of the problem really is that it's assuming that people actually know what a roadmap is. And usually they don't, right? So half the time it's, we need a Gantt chart. We need a project planning tool, a release development plan or something similar. And it's not really the strategic roadmap that is that is being asked for, although that's what's needed, right? And realizing that, realizing that, at the end of the day, um, no matter what tool you throw at the problem, it's not going to solve the problem until you realize what the problem is. And the problem usually is that the companies, most companies don't start with the actual goal, what you're trying to achieve, right? Where you're trying to, um, which market are you trying to penetrate and how you're trying to penetrate it? Uh, and also, you know, what's the product, so to speak? Uh, so this is this is the one thing that I've I've realized, um, and half the time it it involves managing upwards, um, trying to identify um, how do you actually sell this internally, the buyer need versus the the user needs in this case, and it's trying to connect again the sales team, for example, the field team, the solution architects with the decision makers on the product management side. And product management in this case is very often stuck in between the, the field team and the engineering team. You know, the engineering team has the resources. The field team is the one that is trying to communicate the, the, the user and the buyer needs. And product management is kind of stuck in the middle and trying to you know, back, borrow, and steal resources in order to answer what the field team is, is trying to, to get to. So it's, I, I would say it's also balance between both user and buyer needs. It also depends who you use and your buyers are. I mean, in case of most development platforms, it's the developer. 
you know, but who's actually investing for the developers. So it could be a very large corporation and they're trying to achieve goal X, but at the end of the day, it's the developers that are actually using this and they have possibly very, very different needs than the ones making the investment. So it's, uh, yeah, I would say it's definitely a balance, um, but it, it depends on how the company is trying to solve this. No, c completely and totally. And, and, and I think that's where we're, you know, with this question we're trying to get to. Steve, I want to give you a chance to, to sort of weigh in. We started it. We talked about the pretty little graphic. Uh, you know, how, how do you balance? I think product managers and product marketing managers need to spend more time understanding the journey. I'm looking for friction and uh, you've heard me say many times, you know, the product marketing manager's secret weapon is win-loss analysis, which almost no enterprise companies allow product marketing managers to do because salespeople don't, won't do it, but they don't want anybody else to do it either. Uh, but that's where you identify buyer friction. And it, as we've talked about, you know, the difficulty of buying an enterprise product, there are all sorts of ways that we could make it easier for people to buy, not just pricing and packaging, but just, you know, reducing the nonsense. I, I worked with one team that had a 12 page price list that I was able to get down to three quarters of a page uh, because, well, because it was ridiculous. And when I was done, it wasn't ridiculous. Um, but that removed a huge barrier, uh, a, a huge uh, level of friction for the buyer. Um, so as we think about friction or, yeah, friction, I like that word. Um, we should be always looking for ways to remove friction for users so they can get their jobs done better and removing friction for buyers so that it's easier to buy and it's easier to rent out. No, I, I love it. And, and, you know, I didn't realize that you're the Gordon Ramsay of price lists, right? Gordon Ramsay goes into the restaurant turnover thing and takes like a 10 page menu and makes it a one page thing. And you do the same for price lists. Indeed, uh, apparently. Uh, John, you, you weighed in some when we were talking earlier. I just want to give you a chance directly on this question instead of pivoting in from something else. Any last thoughts before we move on to the poll? No, no. I think that we've done a pretty good, pretty good job. I don't think I could add any value here. Awesome. So with that said, on Wednesday, we put this poll into uh, there. And, and Steve, obviously, I, I went with our you know, you want to solve problems that are vital to the buyer, valuable to the user and viable for the business, because I thought this was a good way for us to think about this balance, because there is that third balance of the business. And so we asked, which is hardest to figure out about a problem to solve? Is it vital if it's vital to the buyer, if it's valuable to the user, if it's viable for the business or other? It depends. And Corey, I'm going to start with you and then I'll go to you, Elliot. You the two of you both came in on the user side now. I'm not surprised you came on the user side after the conversation we started with. So I'll let you start with it, Corey, and then we'll go to uh, to uh, Elliot. Yeah, I mean, the to me, the buyer side problem is a checklist. Uh, the user side problem is how do I use this product to help me do my job? Uh, that's the harder one. Uh, it's a harder one for me to understand. I, I don't know if anybody's, I mean, the buyer one is a simpler one to understand for me. Um, and again, I, and if I had to work in enterprise sales or work with enterprise sales products, I, I wouldn't do that for very long. 
I couldn't deal with it that, <laughs> that sale cycle or I'd, I'd slip my wrist. I understand. I can get that. Uh, Elliot, again, you, you yep. were with buyer. Are you, sorry, you were with user as the hardest. I was. Yeah. I think that was also projection or like for me, it was the hardest to actually do. But I think some of the reasons why, especially working in that enterprise B2B type of market, these ERP systems, is that the user populations are vast. Uh, we're also talking oftentimes about international. So there's there's nuances to different cultures, uh, different rules, regulations, and things like that. But the, the population is not only vast, so it's hard to find a persona or an archetype. It's also really difficult to, like, sometimes they want different things. Like you look at what the compliance people want versus what maybe the operations people want in terms of efficiency, you're going to have conflict there. And when there's different user needs, like which users' needs are more important or more more compelling or more pervasive as well, especially when there's conflicts, how do you actually make that happen? And that's probably why some of these systems look, feel, and work as difficult as they do. I don't know. You, you actually may have just convinced me to change my vote. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not just because that would make users win. And I always used to like winning, but <laughs> I, I was, I, I had a client years ago who worked in the education space and they're like, the user is a professor. And I said, tell me more. Is it a tenured professor? Is it a adjunct professor? Is it a visiting lecturer? Right. The problems those three groups have are totally different than each other. Right. And if we don't understand the personas and archetypes, as you said, so even under getting to the, the job level or the role level is not enough because you have to get into, well, this group is very tech savvy and is looking for technical tools. This yep. group is Lud our Luddites who don't want tech tools. And if you can't break that down, I, you know, I think too often we get to a happy middle level, right? And that we don't get deep enough into the granularity to really do the job that we need to. So you really made me think about uh, that one. So All right, I'm going to leave. See y'all later. <laughs> <laughs> Marco, is that you had voted for other? It depends. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I, I, I kind of like your all of the above kind of questions. Um, <laughs> it, it, that's really what it is. I mean, if it's a balance that you're striking, it's exactly the balance between value, viability and feasibility. And of course, well, vital to the buyer. Um, if it's shifting towards one or the other, you're possibly missing out. Yeah. Of course, trying that so they're all hard. It, it is really hard. I mean, the, the vital to the buyer is the easiest one to get wrong, I would say, um, because depending on who you're talking to, unless you're talking to the horse's mouth themselves, it's usually everything is vital to the buyer, right? They needed yesterday. At least that's what yeah. sales tells you. Um, and whether it's valuable to, to the user, um, I mean, that is something that, that is a lot easier to identify, I would say, as a product manager, because we're usually very deeply involved in that decision-making process. At least we should be, right? Yeah. Viability for the business, um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I, I think that's the one that we usually have the least control over, uh, since that's not, that decision is usually not really made by the product manager themselves, but the product leaders and management. Uh, so we kind of have to align with that. Yeah, and actually, I, 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 maybe it was me being provocative with my vote. I did vote for the business. And there's two sort of sides of that. One, exactly what you said. I've been at places where the, the, the field goals were moving, right? They were moving the, the goalposts or moving the goal while you were doing stuff. It's like, I had a CFO say, oh, no, we're no longer judging this on a 
12% cost of capital. We're judging this on a 21% cost of capital, which just changes. How do you understand if, you're, if they're moving those figures and how they're judging it while they're doing it, how do you do it? The other reason is that as we work with a lot of product teams, the biggest gap they see is business financial and business acumen. And a lot of times people can't identify, the product managers can't identify what the business value of release or product is. Is it going to help me increase my profit? Is it going to help me increase my revenue? Is it going to help me reduce costs? Is it going to help me cut sales cycle? Is it going to help me cut my, you know, DSO, day sales outstanding, right? If you can't understand that, most of them can't. How do you understand what's vital to the business? And I think this is a build trap type thing. This is why we end up so often really uh, building stuff that doesn't create value for the business. Uh, and so that's why I went there. And I partly being provocative, partly from the, you know, I, I tend to lean on the business and, and strategy side with that. Uh, May, you did not vote or you voted after I pulled this slide. This I, I voted right before the call. Um, and I went with the business viable for the business. <laughs> I felt like hero in hero. <laughs> ah! and, uh, I, I would echo most of the things you said. Um, and I also wanted to add on that the added complexity when you're talking about the business as a large, because you're talking about the whole business, right? So at the same time, you're not just talking about the product and the market, you're also talking about how the business is organized, how you look at um, like what does success look like across the company? Um, so like, I, I feel like it's a much harder thing to like fully figure out to say like, is this change or is this um, new product going to be viable? Because you, you can't tell the future, right? But mm -hmm. you know, if you do the work to make sure it's both vital to the buyer and usable so you get renewals, um, I, you have a much better chance of doing it. I think it's the hardest thing to figure out exactly. Um, so I just took that question quite literally. Well, and, and you know, it takes me to in our product strategy course, we've got the value creation matrix, which is basically on one end is value to the customer or market, and one end is value of the business, right? And we should be able to balance those things. But I, again, I think that's too often we 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 either go too far to one or the other. There's also like one little step in there that we kind of ignore is that if we do see success, the company tends to scale. And once that scales, the previous organization and everything you knew to be true no longer is, is true. Yeah. Um, so you have to basically redo that math constantly. Um, and that's what makes it really hard to understand viability. No, I, I completely and totally, I get that. Uh, and, 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 you know, sunk costs, right? How often do I see people making decisions on things they've already spent money on or, hey, we're going to kill this product. No, we're not going to get rid of those resources. We're going to we're going to reallocate them. Corey, you have a say? So, say? so with your comment that you just said, so the key to enterprise sales uh, then is sunk cost. Mm -hmm. If we can make it difficult and make a large investment, they're less likely to do it because they've already sunk that investment time into it. So I got you. You, you so brought it full circle. All so the way full circle. Wow. I didn't do thank that on you purpose. Thank you for clarifying that.
<laughs> I'm glad. Wow, I, I, I did that, you know, just out of sheer luck. So uh, how bad does your user experience have to be before they pull the sunk cost card? There's an interesting <laughs> experiment to run. All right, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. John, I want to get your take on the poll. Uh, which is hardest to figure out, the buyer, the user, or the business? Yeah, I don't know if it was a cop-out, but I took it a different direction. For me, it was, you know, balancing them. Um, because I, I think there you can come up with some semblance of a value or, um, for each of them, you know, uh, but but to, to balance the needs of the, you know, the user over the buyer over the business. And so I, I, I kind of pivoted and started talking about WISGIF and, and maybe there's a way to improve WISGIF that it, that it factors in, you know, it's a little more granular to get to the individual needs of users versus, you know, buyers and so on. But um, uh, beyond that, yeah, I don't have much to much to contribute there. I think, yeah. I, 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 you know, obviously we always like to balance it. That's why I try to make people choose, right? And, and other, it depends as yeah. there for, for the cop out. Uh, Steve, you know, we can spend Present. the rest of the time talking about idea as an alternative to Wiz Jeff. And, you know, I do believe if you truly get the, you know, uh, it right, I think it is a good one. But let's start with this question, right? What do you think is the hardest? Well, I'm going to go against what I normally do and agree with you. I know, I know, it's shocking. Uh, I, I think that uh, the the viability for the business is the trickiest thing to figure out. Um, it's it's easy in, in a way to just ingest all of these ideas that are coming from salespeople who presumably represent buyers or at least a buyer. And presumably it's, you know, there are a lot of people speaking out on fav in favor of the user, um, but it's tricky to go to leadership and say, you know, I need to expand my team to work on release two because we're going to put, you know, chat GPT into it. And they're like, oh, can't you do it with the people you've already got? And, or can you show me the business rationale for your thinking? And I find that extremely difficult. Well, the problem with that is too often we've built that hockey stick into our original uh, pro forma that even though we need those extra people to keep that hockey stick going, they thought they already agreed to the hockey stick, but not the extra cost. Uh, <laughs> Very true. And yeah, that's, that's similar to having a marketing budget assigned, but never deployed. Yes, very, very similar. So what a great conversation on that. You know, what I want to, I got a couple questions. I, I think I'm going to hit this one first quickly and then get to the second one to spend a little more time. But the first one is, and maybe this is a, is a rhetorical question. How well do most buyers understand their own users' needs? Corey, you're shaking your not head. Not well. Yeah, not well. <laughs> John uh, says not well. I, I, I never, I never want to go to extreme and say zero or hundred percent, but I'm going to say not well. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of them, probably over 90%, either don't know or, more depressingly, don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I think Steve touched on this before. I can, maybe it wasn't Steve, but th this idea that, you know, when, you know, whoever the decision maker, they probably have this checklist that they're supposed to go through. And that checklist is probably a, you know, a bit of a CYA. And so as long as that's met, like, they're good. And whether or not you know, there might be a line item for a good customer experience or easy rostering or whatever. But uh, I agree, it's it's a very low value, unfortunately. 
Anybody disagree? I disagree. You disagree? Okay. I disagree. Um, yes. And Bring it on. Yeah, I, I actually <laughs> disagree with this one because in my experience in sales ops and talking to salespeople, um, I think they actually, it depends on the company. It really heavily depends on this, the company. This is truly an it the depends, The size, yes. right? Um, and also which buyer you're talking about. So the person championing it usually understands the needs of the users quite well um, yep. and also needs understands the needs of the downstream users, right? And all of these people come together to inform the decision maker. And then in terms of the CYA checklist, that's actually almost always a separate team that does all of that vendor onboarding. It's like a vendor partnership or legal or whoever it might be. Um, so it's like your, your checklist as a decision maker is, do I wanna spend the money? Um, do I think it's valuable and worth the time to implement it? And also has legal checked off the boxes. Yeah, like that, so, that is your checklist as a decision maker. So, so get, it goes back to our conversations of the bad, good or bad manager, right? A good manager understands the user's needs and is advocating for them in this. Well, like generally speaking, it, it also comes back to like, why do you want to implement the solution, right? Why are you buying this product? Um, are you buying this product because you are a brand new director and need to make your splash so you can move up in the bank? Uh, and I've I seen that happen. Too specific there. Um, or, or are you doing it because you think it's actually a really good idea to change the way how like your, your team could work, right? Like it depends on that initial motivation of purchase. And we see this a lot all the time, be it like on the sales side or on the person, on the people impacted side. No, I, I like that. Yeah. And actually, I think for me, I, I look at this as an opportunity for product management and marketing. If there, whenever there is a gap there, fill it, right? Help the buyer understand the use cases, help them understand the value we'd be creating for them. It helps make your case better. Uh, all right, I wanted to get to this question before we get to the wrap up. What is the impact if you overcorrect one way or the other towards buyers or users? I like Steve's. Um, citing of, uh, of Salesforce. I thought that was actually, I hadn't really thought of it that way, that they initially targeted buyers. They achieved a you know, pretty significant market share, realized that they had a crap experience for salespeople, you know, the intended audience, and then shifted and, and started, you know, provided a much better experience. And then, you know, had continued success through there. So um, I think it is correctable. I mean, if you error one way or the other, um, I think also this is a definite, you know, there's going to be a difference between, you know, B2C versus B2B. Um, but with B2B, I, I, I think targeting buyers, you know, can, can be a successful, you know, waiting, you know, if you're going to err to err towards um, um, pleasing buyers, it might be a successful approach. But I, I certainly welcome dissenting opinions. Corey, I'm going to go to, for, to you for dissenting opinion since you shared the Slack concept earlier, right? Is that the opposite going all the way to the user side and then helping it bubble up? Do they, did they have to correct on the enterprise sales side? I, I mean, they had to answer questions, but it's, it's how far do you, do you go down that path? Some people, and this is a very difficult concept for some people to understand. Not everybody is your customer. 
you're not going to get 8 billion people to buy your product. Uh, there are some people that don't want to buy your product because they're in different markets, different businesses, different needs, whatever. They don't have the money or whatever. But if the users find out, I'm, I'm biased because I bias on the users and making products that are useful to humans. If you do that, somebody has to buy it. Ideally, it's you. If it's not you, the user, if it's not you, the user, hopefully it's somebody that that trusts you and understands you and, and helps you buy those products. The worst case scenario is it's somebody who's completely detached from you, doesn't know you exist, doesn't want to know you exist, and just says, I will sign the check after you complete my thing. So I I would, again, I'd rather overcorrect toward the users and make it easy for people to buy once the users have made a decision. Okay. A other thoughts on this one? We don't need to get everybody on each one, but any other thoughts that want to be shared? Well, maybe I, I see it as an analogy, like going to the hardware store and buying something you think is useful, you know, and bring that back home and then trying to convince your spouse that you actually need it. <laughs> I mean, this happens all too often. So a decision was made in favor of one or the other, and then you're trying to correct the mistake. And half the time, it may actually be better to pull the emergency break, you know, take the receipt and bring it back to the store instead of saying, no, let's make this work because we thought we needed and we want to make the best of our investment. So this happens far too often. And it's, of course, it's the, the reason is being the misalignment in the very beginning of making the decision process, the, the buying decision, right? And so, yes, I personally think it is most important. I'm also a product manager, so I also think users are most important, but somebody's going to have to flip the bill. And if the need is there, but the buyer says no, you usually don't move forward. If the buyer buys it and then tries to force it into the user, you may make the revenue, but you make it once. It's not scalable. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And, and there, there are definitely times, even in B2C, where I buy something on a value prop and then I never use it. Uh, so. Like those clubs, right? Yeah, I never buy that again. Steve, any last thoughts before we move on to the wrap up? Well, as to the question of impact, if you overcorrect on buyers, the impact is usually a failure to go public. Because by correcting toward by overcorrecting on buyers, you're you're going to have a tendency to add functionality because a buyer wants it, not the market. And the VC people and the um, the IPO people are like, how much have you customized this code? And the answer is, oh, 100%. You know, every customer has a unique code base, and you'll find you have a nice 0.8. Uh, <laughs> uh, valuation as opposed to a hundred X valuation. Yeah. So the impact of overcorrecting on buyers is poor market valuation. I can see that. I like that. So great conversation. Uh, you know, let's talk about what are our biggest takeaways? Uh, Elliot, I'm going to start with you. What's your biggest takeaways from this conversation? Uh, it's very interesting. I, I think one of the big words that I'm going to take away the word of the day would probably be friction about the amount of friction that uh, some applications are there. Probably all of the applications I've ever product managed. And while I like to think that I made some, uh, 
some really good progress in terms of reducing that friction. I know I probably could have done more in some of the introspection that I did answering the question of the week are some things that I want to think about and doing better as I uh, kind of get back into my next product management seat. So it's good for me to kind of uh, recognize, hold myself accountable and go from there. So I appreciate awesome. all the input. Awesome. Thank you, Marco. I would say um, invest more in the discovery process before making the wrong decision and then trying to correct it. So get more understanding of both. Exactly. Absolutely. Again, try to get that balance from the very beginning and make the best possible decision at the time. Of course, realign as often as you can, but don't just make an assumption, make the decision, and then regret it afterwards. Love it. John. Um, one, I'm glad I'm not an enterprise sales. That was something I hadn't thought about before. I'm really glad um, that would be death for me. And the second is, um, oh shoot, it just escaped me. Come back to me, it'll, it'll come back. All right, Corey. Uh, that buy-in should be an obvious choice and an easy process. I like that, I like that. May. It's, um, it's interesting to see how people are feeling about just the complexity of enterprise. And I think while it's complex, it's there are ways to work around it. And it maybe we need to talk to our salespeople a bit more to understand those intricacies as much as we don't want to. No, I love it. Steve. A great product manager understands the friction of buying and the friction of using, as well as the competitive landscape and the product vision. That's my takeaway. Start and end. Wow. Full alpha, alpha omega uh, on that one. Uh, for me, I, I think my biggest takeaway, and it, we've, we've had this often, is my lens often comes from that complex enterprise. I, that's where I've spent a lot of my time. And I probably, it's nice to hear other perspectives. I think Corey really, Corey and Elliot with the whole conversation, both in the Monday question, and then especially Elliot on the poll really opened my eyes to the user. And it's like, but then I started thinking when I've had my most success is when I'm going and talking to users about their value and able, able to help create that bit that the buyer value, understanding that even with the, because sometimes the buyers don't get the value down at that level. And if you can help them make that, and I think maybe that's what it is. Part of the balance is we need to help bridge that. Sometimes as we talked about, the buyers don't understand the users and their needs and the value that we can create. And if we can be that bridge, that puts us in a great position for that. John, did you uh, remember what that other one was? Yeah, yeah about 0.8 seconds after I handed off. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's that um, to be more holistic. And, and really, because it is, it is easy to, you know, to focus just on one and to take a step back and say, you know, wait a second, am I really thinking about the, the bigger picture here? Boy, I feel like we By could say that on almost every one. Were you going to say? No, no, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah, no. So I think, but that's the same thing, right? All of these conversations. And again, what a great conversation. My mind was changed. I learned, I grew. I want to thank each and every one of you. 
Next week, we're going to actually do this. And Marco didn't know what he was doing. Marco, in this call, referenced last week with roadmaps and then talked about market problems, right? How do you better understand the problems? And so, so in his own way, Marco sort of is the bridge from last week to this week to next week, uh, where we're going to talk about market problems, right? And how do we do these well, right? How do we understand them? How do we communicate them to empower the organization? So next week, we're going to be talking about market problems. Steve, we haven't talked about this concept. We haven't talked about problem statements or market problems ever, a hundred and some episodes. How do we do that? Well, it is a very important topic. I agree. But I think we talked about it in the context of discovery, not into the, in the top uh, context of, of communication. So yeah. I'm looking so, forward to it. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a good conversation. And, you know, we do this every week. Uh, Monday question goes in, Wednesday the poll, Friday these amazing conversations where I grow and I learn and it makes me think and it's energizing. So thank you to everybody, Elliot, Marco, John, Corey, May, my friend, Steve. Thanks everybody, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week in the, in the community. Take care everybody. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Product Growth Leaders Topic of the Week. If you haven't yet, go to your Apple, Android, or favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another episode. For more great content and to participate in the Topic of the Week conversations, go to community.productgrowthleaders.com and join the conversation.